Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 38, The Bloody House of Asen. Now, we've got no new Patreon supporters this time because it's just a couple hours after I recorded the last episode, because as of this evening, I am off to Vietnam for a few weeks for a hard-earned vacation. So, I'm getting everything done ahead of time. But, as always, thank you so much to the people who pledge on Patreon, and for everyone else, consider a dollar or two an episode. It's not much, and it really makes a difference over here. So now, straight to the narrative. So we left off last time with the murder of Kaoyan and the ascension of Tsar Boril to the throne. Now, owing to the fact that Boril is suspected to have murdered Kaoyan himself, his cousin Ivan Asen, the son of Ivan Asen I, one of the two founders of the Second Bulgarian Empire, fled to the Rus kingdom of Galicia, Volhynia, a rising power which had recently captured Kiev from a rival principality. So, he's off in Russia. Now, Boril's brother Stretz also fled the country, but instead went to Serbia. There, he was given control of the fortress of Prosek in modern Macedonia. The reasoning by the Serbian king Stefan Nemanjevic was that he could use Stretz's royal blood to rally the people of Macedonia around him and thereby gain control of that region along with Kosovo for Serbia. So, You heard me talk last time about how kind of national sentiments aren't that important here, but they aren't nothing. And this is kind of an example of uh, politicians and kings and power players saying, well, this person has sort of a familial dynastic connection to this place. It should be easier for him to take control of it. Then another of Boril's cousins, whose mother was one of Boril's sisters, uh, which one is unknown, they also fled. Now, this man was known as Alexius Slav, and he went to the Rudopi Mountains and carved out a bit of territory based around the fortress of Tsepina. So, in short, the living members of the Asen dynasty all fled in every direction. In doing so, they quickly became pawns in greater power games of the region. Leaders in Kiev, Kotor, and Constantinople all saw their opportunities to take advantage of the discord within the Bulgarian dynasty. Now, in this moment, I want to echo a point made by John Fine in his book, The Late Medieval Balkans, A Critical Survey from the Late 12th Century. Now, this is what I kind of just referred to. He argues that the ease with which outlying regions broke away from medieval Balkan states, including Bulgaria, spoke to the fact that in spite of their titles and presumptions, these really were not national states. The relationships which comprised these states were not national and bureaucratic, as are the ones that make up most states today. Instead, they were personal. They were feudal. Strength and self-interest held states together. Loyalties were primarily focused around the practical, far more than some grand idea about nation or ideology. 
And this held true throughout Europe until maybe the 19th century. It's uh, it's vague to kind of put an end to this, but for a lot longer than people really realize. So that's something to bear in mind. You know, titles and references to a glorious past were powerful, right? They were part of the idea uh, of why the Serbian king brought threats to Macedonia. Uh, that's why I mentioned that Theodor and Asen decided to found a new Bulgarian state and not just their own brand new kingdom with a brand new name. But we still have to recognize that the dynamics were here. You know, the dynamics were why, why was it so easy for these states to break apart and reform? As Fine puts it, th- these situations, this kind of nature of power politics at the time, made states very ephemeral. They were always one weak leader away from breaking apart. And that is something we have to really keep in mind here. That goes for the Latin Empire, that goes for Epirus, that goes for Thessalonica, for Bulgaria, for Hungary. These states are always one weak leader away from disaster. In the transition from Kalyan to Boril, Bulgaria went from being a major power to being a minor one within years. The quickness of that transition was because of those fundamental facts about power and statehood during the period. So bear that in mind. It's a little kind of tangent, but I think this is really important for framing everything that's happening right now. So to ground us, All this happened, all the things we're talking about right now, happened throughout 1207. But by the end of the year, Boril had successfully consolidated his power in Tornovo. He may have been seen as a usurper by many, but he was still in charge. Once that task was completed, Boril took on the task of completing some of Kalyan's unfinished business. That included the ongoing war with the Latin Empire, and putting down an uprising of Greek nobles in eastern Thrace. In May of 1208, Boril marched through the Balkan Mountains to pacify the region. Now, it's a bit unclear, but it seems like Boril was at war with his cousin Alexios Slav at this time, so there was also likely fighting in the Rodopi Mountains as well as Thrace. But the main Bulgarian force was going to meet the Latins and their emperor, Henry. The forces met near the modern city of Starozagora, and fighting was inconclusive. Some sources claim a Bulgarian victory, others a Latin one. But in any case, after this engagement, the Latins moved south to Philippopolis. You'll recall Bulgaria took the city recently, but who controlled it now is a little unclear. It may have been taken back. Fine guesses that a local Greek nobleman probably took control of the city with the death of Kalyan, and frankly, I'm inclined to agree. Each army had between 20 and 30,000 soldiers, including Cuman cavalry or for the Bulgarians and heavy knights for the Latins. Boril attempted to play the same trick which had brought Kaolian such an incredible victory at Adrianople. You know, using the Cuman cavalry to lure the Latins into a trap, but sadly for the Bulgarians, The Latins had learned their lessons the hard way and weren't about to repeat those silly mistakes. In fact, they laid a trap of their own, ambushing Boril's personal force and defeating it. When Boril retreated, his army fled with him towards the mountains. It was believed that the Latins wouldn't follow, 
having doubtless heard stories about the many, many Greek and Byzantine armies who never returned from trying to make it through. But the Latins did pursue, leading to a protracted and intense battle between the rear formation of the Bulgarian army and the Latins. Bloody as that engagement must have been, it lasted long enough for the rest of the Bulgarian army to escape. Now, this all was without a doubt a loss for Borneo, but importantly, it was not a catastrophic one. It was a setback, but his army remained intact, so he could fight another day. But still, this was an opportunity for the Latins to expand their power in Thrace, and that's precisely what they did. They took Philippopolis and pressured Alexios Slav to swear fealty to Emperor Henry, in addition to getting to marry his illegitimate daughter. It was only two years from Kalyan's attempt to take Thessalonica and expand Bulgaria to the Aegean, but now the power of Turnival clearly ended at the Balkan Mountains. So again, within a very, very short period of time, uh, the, the ambitions and the power of the Bulgarian state diminished greatly. And that diminishment was in part about this loss uh, near Starozagora, but it was also in part to, well, Boro himself, belief in Boro, belief in his power, belief in his legitimacy. In the meantime, the Serbian king, along with Stretz, also invaded Macedonia and managed to conquer everything west of the Struma River and give it to Stretz to rule. But importantly, with Serbian troops to make sure he didn't, you know, get any big ideas. So the Serbs claimed that these were Bulgarian lands controlled by the true heir to the Bulgarian throne. But really, this was all just a tool for the Serbs to take territory without prompting a larger unified response by the Bulgarian state. And frankly, it worked brilliantly. Many Bulgarians actually abandoned Boril and rallied around Stretz instead. In the meantime, as 1208 wore on, Emperor Henry's army progressed to Thessalonica to secure pro-Latin forces there. But Ceres, within the territory of Thessalonica, had rebelled and requested assistance from Boril, preferring to now preferring him to the Latins. So once again, we're seeing this complex bit of politics. You know, the, the Greeks have to decide, do we like the Latins or the Bulgarians more? Or really maybe who do we hate more? Though all this, yeah, further reinforces that point about how politics was working. But in any case, it didn't matter. Henry was in the area and was therefore able to exert control over these rebellious elements long before Boril had a chance to assert himself there. In the meantime, though, Boril was doing more than simply licking his wounds after his losses. He was composing an anti-Latin coalition between himself, the Emperor of Nicaea, and the despotate of Epirus. In case you forgot, those were two Greek-dominated Byzantine successor states. So Boril was even remarkably actually able to bring Stretz into the alliance in spite of their sort of well, bad blood before. The reason was that Stretch was incre increasingly sort of resenting being made a puppet of the Serbian king. But of course, he didn't have the strength by himself to break away from the Serbs. He could only do that with Bulgarian assistance. Boril himself 
also undoubtedly saw that his weak position was coveted and additional resources from the Macedonian territories of Stretz could provide needed strength. But still, so this is kind of an interesting example of how that Serbian technique can backfire. You know, sure, sure bringing in uh, one of the members of the Bulgarian royal family can help you rally people around his cause and quickly conquer this territory, but it also makes it easier for that territory to break away. Now, this agreement between Boro and Stretz may have been the result of actually Boro attacking Stretz, but, or it may have come without bloodshed. Like, we're, we're not really sure how this, you know, whether more force or less force was involved in making this alliance. But ultimately, Stretz was given a title and became Boril's ally. Now, fortunately for Boril, when, while he was assembling his forces in 1209, Henry was moving south, farther into Greece, to further exert Latin control there. Boril and his partners may have made an attack on Thessalonica that year, but we're unsure. If he did, it led to nothing. But in 1210, Henry was on to what was happening and turned north to attack Epirus. In spite of the collected efforts to fend him off, Henry took important victories and took territory. As a result, in 1211, Epirus decided to switch sides, deciding that the Latins would actually make better neighbors than the Bulgarians. As a result, the forces of Epirus began making attacks against threats in his territories shortly after the alliance was concluded. At this point... <clears throat> As a result, the forces of Epirus began making attacks against Threats and his territories shortly after concluding this alliance with the Latins. Now at this moment, oddly enough, Boril decided it was time to delve into church politics a bit. Interesting timing, if you ask me. Now, his synod convened in early 1211. It confirmed the use of the Greek Orthodox method of confession, it decided that Easter would be held on its Catholic and not its Orthodox date, and it condemned the Bogomils, who were still around to some extent, as heretics. So, a few interesting moves, maybe moving a little bit closer to the Catholic Church uh, with that move of Easter, but like nothing earth-shattering. But it's interesting that Boril bothered it all. Nothing seems to point to him being a particularly religious person, and the resulting synod didn't help that reputation. But there are guesses that this was actually in response to the growing popularity of Bogomilism, the kind of resurgent popularity, or I think more likely, an attempt to shore up popular support. But for whatever reason, in 1211, Bordel decided it was time to get some you know, church politics credentials in. So back to the other events. In spring of 2011, not only was Epirus changing sides, but the Empire of Nicaea, one of the Greek successor states of the Byzantines, was beginning the a siege of Constantinople. With Henry and his army off at Thessalonica, he had to react quickly to defend his capital. Bordel saw this and saw the opportunity that it presented. So Henry's army as Bordel thought, would be very vulnerable in its haste to cross Thrace and get to the capital in time. 
So he allied himself with the Nicaeans and laid a trap in that great destroyer of Byzantine armies, a mountain pass. However, Henry's informant networks brought word of the trap and managed to pressure Bordel to withdraw. But there were still opportunities afoot for the enemies of the Latins, because as he departed, Henry left Thessalonica vulnerable, and, well, knowing he would be distracted for a while, Stretz attacked the region. But unfortunately for him, Henry may not have been there to defend the city, but the forces of Michael of Epirus, his new ally, were. They beat Stretz back, forcing him to withdraw to his own Macedonian territories. Now, Michael gathered more troops from Thessalonica itself and chased Stretz back, further back, invading his lands in the process. Seeing his new ally threatened, Borel sent aid, and the combined Greek and Latin forces met the Bulgarians in the summer at Pelagonia, which is modern Bitola in Macedonia. The result was a Bulgarian defeat, although it doesn't seem like the Greek and Latin forces managed to take advantage of the victory. So once again, Borel's losing, but he's not losing much. In the meantime, Henry had managed to break the siege of Constantinople, not with direct military force, but by convincing the Seljuks to attack Nicaea from the rear. Henry took advantage of the situation by invading Nicaea himself. The hope was that the combined Latin and Seljuk invasions would crush the young empire with a pincer move. But the Seljuks were quickly defeated, and Henry just gave up at that point. Also in the meantime, because it turns out that 1211 was a pretty busy year, Borel himself tried his hand at attacking Thessalonica in October. But once again, the attack was repelled, this time by the Latins with help from Alexius Slav, who captured the important fortress of Melnik in the process. Within four years, it would become his capital and main fortress. Now, another brief tourism note here, Melnik is a lovely town. If you're ever in Bulgaria, I highly recommend going there, doing some wine tours. Uh, it's a place I love taking my family. So yeah, minor side note, go check out Melnik. It's beautiful. And you can actually see the remains of the fortress of Alexios Slav while you're there. So little history, little wine, what more could you want? Okay, so in general, the past few years, we have to agree, have not been going well for Boreal. Sure, he hasn't actually lost that much territory or suffered any truly catastrophic defeats, but his lack of success, combined with the popular vision of him as a usurper and a possible murderer of Kaoyan, meant that his hold on power was tenuous. As a result, there's some, or there's some speculation it was because Borel may have divorced his Kuman wife, the former wife of Kaoyan, if you'll remember, and that her relatives were not too pleased with this. In 1211, that same year where everything seems to happen, there was also an uprising against Borel in Viden, in the north. Now at this point, Borel could hardly afford to take his attention away from Thrace and Macedonia. So instead, he appealed to King Andrew II of Hungary for help. Hungary and Bulgaria may have fought over those Danubian territories north of Vidin, but this territory was considered firmly Bulgarian and good relations 
were such that the Hungarians were willing to retake the city and return it to Boril, which they did. Now, the next two years were a bit quieter. Henry was busy dealing with Nicaea, while Boril dealt with Vidin and Epirus as they tried to expand in the south. Now, in this period, specifically in 1213, another thing happened. A papal legate, kind of like a diplomat, uh, was on his way to Constantinople and decided to help broker peace between Bulgaria and the Latin Empire. Now, Henry wanted to focus his attention on Anatolia, and while it was clear that Boreal dreamed of expanding south and retaking Thrace, at this point, it was a fantasy. You know, Bulgaria didn't have anywhere near the resources or the, the kind of strength to really take those territories. So, with the help of this papal legate, both empires decided that peace was in their best interest. And so that year, Henry actually married Bordel's stepdaughter to solidify the alliance. Henry's first wife, the daughter of a fellow leader of the Fourth Crusade, had died along with their child during childbirth. Now, at the same time, Boreal also solidified his Hungarian alliance with a marriage proposal between his daughter and King Andrew's son, Bella. So, you know, it's good, good news for, for Bulgaria, right? So, Boreal may have failed in trying to conquer all these territories. You know, he may not have had great military success, but now a couple marriages, a couple alliances, and it seems like things should settle down a bit. Of course, all of these alliances were really awkward for Alexius Slav down in his new capital of Melnik. Because he had been fighting Boril as an ally of Henry up until now. His wife, Henry's daughter, had died, and so his marriage alliance with the Latin Empire was now very much kind of gone, and particularly outdone by the alliance that Boril had just created. So, feeling vulnerable, Alexios Slav ultimately responded with a marriage alliance with Epirus in 1216, placing him against Threats, Henry, and Boril alike. Once again, we're just seeing a continuation of this really, really chaotic political situation of the Balkans during this period, right? People, the Bulgarians will ally with the Greeks, will ally with the Latins, with the Hungarians, and everyone's kind of playing musical chairs. So then all of this was also a bit awkward for Stretz, because, okay, sure, he was now Boreal's ally, but part of the reason he became Boreal's ally was that so he could take more territory in Thrace, which was now out of the question because, you know, the Latins controlled Thrace and they were now an ally. But Stretz was still satisfied to be part of this alliance because it was going to help him fend off Serbian attacks. And he was right. Because when 1214 rolled around, a major attack on Serbia began. So, uh, just to recap there, threats, he's worried about being attacked from Serbia, but attacking Serbia is just as good, and so that's what everyone decides to do. So, this attack involves two major kind of strikes. One from the south, led by Stretz himself, and another from the east, by a combined force of Bulgarian and the Latin Empire. So, this is kind of an interesting war, right? Literally like two years ago, these people are fighting each other. Now they're marching to war together. So Stretz himself progresses up the long valley of the Varda River, pausing at Polog, which is now Tetovo in Macedonia, near the Serbian border. So he doesn't invade Serbia quite yet, but Polog acts as a base of operations, allowing him to raid into Serbian territory. 
while at the same time, that combined Latin and Bulgarian force lays siege to Nish. Now, the monk Sava, later Saint Sava, after whom Belgrade's main church is named, was sent as an envoy to Stretz to convince him to end his invasion. Now, Stretz was unconvinced, let's say. And as a result, afterwards, possibly on Sava's orders, or possibly simply by pro-Serbian forces who were inspired by Sava's words, who didn't want to have this Bulgarian alliance, who wanted to keep closer to Serbia, someone like this murdered Stretz in his camp. Now, this led to the entire war kind of quickly sputtering into nothing. The armies around Nish retreated, and Serbia went back to its own business, with arguments between the Latins and Bulgarians possibly to blame. So, no territory changed hands, but now that Stretz was dead, he had no children, he had no dynasty, and as a result, Boro quickly took control of his former territory. However, Boro, as you can probably guess, just really didn't have the strength to hold on to it, and within a year, the, the territory was absorbed by Epirus. So, also, while all of this is going on, Emperor Henry himself died, apparently poisoned by a rival. Really, this is a, another interesting thing about this whole period of Bulgarian history. It's just everyone gets murdered. Uh, I'm tr I honestly would have a hard time remembering the last time we saw a natural death in the story. But that's how it goes. So when he Emperor Henry was poisoned, his brother-in-law, well, now he was next in the line. So... The problem here was that he was at his residence in central France, which, you know, even today is a decent ways off from Istanbul and in the Middle Ages was a very long way from Constantinople. But as soon as he got word, he headed there to take up his throne. And along the way, he stopped in Rome to be crowned Emperor Peter II by the Pope. But that way, you know, the road wasn't so simple. You know, turns out, uh, again, as we know, France and Constantinople are pretty far from each other. So how did Peter try to get there? First, he went to Venice. There, he asked to borrow a ship so he could get to Constantinople. In return, he said that he would take Dyrrhachium. Yes, Dyrrhachium, our old friend, that city, it's now Bdurus in modern Albania, the one which the Normans kept trying to seize, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's a port city and Venice wants it. So Peter tries to take it, fails. So Venice says, sorry, no ships for you. So Peter decides he's going to go overland. So he does that. Uh, but on the way, he gets captured by the forces of Epirus, who at this point, you'll remember, is an enemy of the Latin Empire. And so they throw him in prison and he dies there. So that's that. That's, we've now had three Latin emperors. Two of them were captured, thrown in prison and died there. And the other one was poisoned. So this is going great. In the meantime, the Latin Empire was ruled by Peter's wife and Henry's sister, Yolanda. So then in 1217, Andrew II of Hungary, well, he decides to take up a long postponed plan to go off and start the Fifth Crusade. Because, you know, it's easy to forget that the whole point of the Fourth Crusade was to take the Holy Land, if you'll remember, and uh, got a little bit sidetracked and founded the Latin Empire. So, you know. The armies of Islam still in control of the Holy Land, so of course the Pope has been calling for a fifth crusade, more or less since the fourth one failed. So Andrew of Hungary decides to do it. To, to kind of get this started, he actually gives Zadar to Venice, which you'll remember the fourth crusade took it for Venice, and at some point the Hungarians got it back, in exchange for transporting him and his army to Acre, 
So the question now is, what does this mean for Boreal? Because both his main allies, Hungary and the Latin Empire, are now being ruled by weak regents, right? The, the new emperor of the, of the Latin Empire is in prison and is going to die soon. Uh, Andrew II of Hungary is going off on crusade. And Borel hasn't really been in a super strong position. So all this means, you can probably guess, it is time for an outsider to strike. Ivan Asen II, the, the son of Ivan Asen, the one who spent the long years of Borel's reign in exile in Russia, well, he returns at the head of an army to reclaim his throne in 1218. And frankly, it didn't take much to do that. Borel was in a weak geopolitical position, he was unpopular at home, and the people of Turnival threw open the gates to the young, dashing Tsar-in-waiting, and Borel was quickly blinded and died somehow. I mean, his fate is unknown, but we just know he was blinded. So, you'll recall that I mentioned earlier in this episode that the personality of rulers was so important to the relative strength of the state during this period? Well, the arrival of Ivana Sen II, this, again, fiery 20-year-old, well, he's going to test that. The king of Hungary is on crusade, the Latin Empire is headless, and this young man has just taken the throne of the Second Bulgarian Empire. That means next time, we're going to see where all of this leads. What can he do? What is the force of his personality, and how will it impact events? So, you're going to have to wait for April to that one, but... I promise you it'll be a great episode. So this episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey, with research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes, listen on SoundCloud, check out the Bulgarian Now podcast, check out the Bohemian Sofia tour. You know all this good stuff. If you haven't taken a look at it, there's a reason I recommend it all every episode. These are great, great programs, great uh, events, great things to listen to. So in the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck.